Hazel hosts fiction authors every now and then, usually for the release of a new spy novel. It's rare that a piece of fiction predicts the future, and even rarer, it's lent such a degree of authenticity and authority by its two authors. Good evening and welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, the President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Our program tonight highlights a new geopolitical thriller, 2034, a novel of the next world war. Co-written by Elliot Ackerman, a National Book Award journalist, finalist, pardon me, and Marine Corps veteran who served five tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, and Jim Stavridis, retired four-star and admiral and former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. In the book, they imagine a naval clash between the U.S. and China in the South China Sea in the year 2034, when a single technological leap enables China to outmaneuver our military. They've received rave reviews for their work, and Jim Mattis calls it a sobering cautionary tale for our time. Unfortunately, we have just heard this afternoon that Admiral Stavridis is unable to join us tonight due to unforeseen circumstances, but we are so happy Elliot could still be with us, and I look forward to a fascinating discussion. You can purchase your signed book plate copy of 2034 at Bang Books, our local bookstore partner, and our audience receives a 10% discount off uh, any of the books in your online cart. Remember, it's not just for uh, 2034, but it's a 10% uh, discount using the code DFWWORLD. We have a full schedule of virtual programs, so remember to check out our website at dfwworld.org uh, for newly scheduled events. The Council is incredibly grateful for all of its supporters, and tonight I'd like to especially thank Gary Wolins for his program sponsorship. Gary serves on the council's board of directors and we thank him for his continued support of our mission. Gary, thank you very much. I'd like to remind everyone that you too can sponsor a program for as little as $500 or $1,000 and to get in touch with Alana Boyne Rostro at our council at 956-466-1149. About sponsorship opportunities. Moderating tonight's discussion is Council Board Member Jay Young, who recently retired as a captain from the Navy Reserves. Jay began his career in the U.S. government as a military analyst. He is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and earned his master's degree from King's College London and a PhD from Ohio State University. His long business career includes senior leadership positions in management consulting, information technology services, and diversified manufacturing industries. And now, Jay, with that, I hand it over to you. Thank you very much for joining us again, gentlemen, and I am looking forward to this. Liz, thank you very much. And Elliot, welcome to uh, Dallas-Fort Worth virtually. Uh, we're really glad to have you here to talk about what uh, I think is uh, going to be a fascinating uh, discussion here about this uh, new book that you uh, and uh, Admiral Stravitas have, uh, have written. 
And what I'd like to do just to start out is to have you talk a little bit about the creative process involved in putting this book together. You're a novelist, uh, an accomplished novelist, uh, four novels uh, to your name, uh, so many of which have received substantial recognition, as well as a Marine, and uh, who's seen, as they used to say in the 19th century, seen the elephant uh, up close and personal in the uh, uh, combat that uh, you participated in. So talk to us a little bit about the creative process. What were you and uh, Admiral Stuvidis looking to do in putting this book together? There've been a lot of books about the you know, future wars and China wars and, and uh, this long tradition that goes back to the 20th century about using novels to talk about wars. Talk about you know, how you all kind of got together to think about this and what were the sort of things that you, you were thinking as you put this, uh, began to put this novel together. Um, first of all, thanks so much for moderating this, Jay, and thanks so much to the World's Affairs Council for hosting us this evening. Um, you know, the way this book came about was, uh, it, the concept of the book was originally uh, Jim's idea. And he had been looking at, as you alluded to Jay, this history of particularly 20th century novels, many of them focused around the Cold War. Uh, books like you know, the, the Bedford Incident, mm -hmm. or even films that I grew up watching like Red Dawn, or, <laughs> or um, um, and this sort of rich history of speculative fiction around the Third World War. And as tensions heightened with around China, and we kind of look into this 21st century, what conflict looks like, he had the idea of, you know, perhaps we could, or someone could write a novel uh, that would contribute to a new bookshelf of this type of speculative fiction. Um, so what you may or may not know is uh, the Admiral and I actually have the same editor at Penguin Press. Ah, okay. So, <laughs> so he went. So he went to our shared editor, uh, a guy named Scott Moyers, and said, you know, this is my idea. It would be a work of speculative fiction that imagined what it would look like if the U.S. and China went to war in the South China Sea. And so Scott said to him, you know, this is great. You've done we've done a number of a number of nonfiction books together, um, but you've never really done a novelist and aren't you and Elliot pretty good friends? And have you ever thought about collaborating on this with Elliot? Um, and so uh, the Admiral and I have known each other for about 10 years. We're both alumni of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts. Uh, we did not overlap there as students. However, when he retired from the Navy in 2013, he took over as the Dean. I had by that point uh, left the Marine Corps and uh, we knew one another and he invited me to be the writer in residence at the Fletcher School. And so when he sent me a note with this offer, he had the bullet points of you know, what my duties would entail. And one of the bullet points was talk about books with the Admiral whenever he feels, or with the Dean, whenever he feels <laughs> like it. And so, um, so first Great. semester I was writer in residence and we had many evenings, the two of us sort of, you know, just leisurely talking about books, you know, works of nonfiction, but you know, works of fiction. He's deeply read. So, so when this idea kind of came to me, you know, I knew Jim well, and I knew his sensibilities. And we talked about, well, you know, what, what type of a book would we write? And we were very much aligned on a couple of points. Um, the first was we wanted this to be a book that was not a real thick 900 page doorstopper techno thriller. Um, exactly. The other point was we, we wanted this to be character driven. Uh, and I think that's, that's important. Hey, go ahead. Sorry. 
Yeah, that's, I think, a key point. Uh, that's the one thing that jumped out at me, Elliot, was the nature of the characters. Uh, there are five, I think, key characters that drive the book. Talk a little bit, if you would, about who they are and kind of how the, you know, how the book begins, you know, to get people a, a sense as to, uh, you know, what to expect, you know, as they, uh, who have not seen it, but uh, who hopefully will, will hear this and want to jump right into it. If you could kind of set that up, that'd be great. Yeah, sure, Jay. Yeah. So I imagine many of you might not have picked up the book or read much about it yet, but when the, when the novel opens, um, what occurs is we have this precipitating incident in the South China Sea. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with, I mean, the South China Sea is a body of water that's the size of the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean combined. It is, uh, you know, rich in, rich in fossil fuels and natural resources. Um, it is a swath of water that is considered by under international law as international waters. However, the Chinese for a number of years have claimed them as territorial waters, uh, even though that, that claim has been thrown out uh, of a number of international courts. So to this day, the US Navy, as well as the navies of many of our allies, conduct what we call freedom of navigation patrols through the South China Sea. Um, you know, in, in the book, when we write about it, we basically describe this sort of the equivalent of our navies donut driving the front yard of their neighbor when the neighbor moves the fence a couple inches in a way we don't like. Um, so these patrols, although they're not they're not kinetic in any way, are are very provocative. And so the book opens on the South China Sea in the year 2034 during one of these freedom of navigation patrols, and you are on the bridge of a U.S. destroyer with Commodore Sarah Hunt who is leading a three-ship flotilla on one of these patrols. And her patrol spies a ship in distress, a Chinese fishing trawler. And under international laws of the sea, she has an obligation to investigate. When she goes to investigate, she finds out that it is anything but a fishing trawler. Then immediately cut to now the other side of the world, the Straits of Hormuz, right up along Iranian airspace. Now we have another one of the central characters of the book, Marine Major Chris Wedge Mitchell. Wedge is his call sign because a wedge is the world's oldest and simplest tool. And he is definitely an individual that harkens back to another era, right. sort of the mid 20th century. And he is flying his state-of-the-art F-35 strike fighter right up to the edge of Iranian airspace. And as he's sitting in the cockpit, he's sort of lamenting that unlike his father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather, all of whom were pilots, he laments the fact that he feels less like a pilot and more like a technician in his F-35. And sort of right as he's thinking this, suddenly the controls in his F-35 become non-responsive. They've been taken over and his aircraft is drifting into Iranian airspace and is forced to land inside of Iran. Now, cut to the White House, national security staff inside the Situation Room where you meet Sandy Chowdhury, a first-generation American whose family immigrated here from India. He works on the National Security Council staff, is also, of course, a graduate of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. <laughs> and um, nice when you meet, thank you, and when you meet him, uh, the phone is ringing and he is getting news of these two twin incidents, this Chinese fishing trawler in distress in the South China Sea, and this F-35 that has gone into Iranian airspace, two bubbling crises that he's trying to respond to at the same time and trying to understand what's going on. As he's figuring it all out, 
telephone rings, and it's the fourth central character in this book, Admiral Lin Bao, the military attache to the United States. And he has been ordered to deliver a message that these two events are in fact connected and that China is no longer going to permit the US to continue these, pro these provocative patrols in the South China Sea. Um, and he's half and, American, is he not? And he is, and he is half American. Right. He yeah. is a person who, whose parentage, his mother was American. He was raised in China. In his career, the great advantage that he has had is this dual identity and this deep, deep insight into American culture. He was also uh, educated at Harvard and at the Naval War College. But going hand in hand with that is the fact that the Chinese also hold him somewhat in suspicion because of this. It's a, it's a, it's a double-edged sword for him. They hold him somewhat in suspicious because of his American ties. But he's the one who is tasked with delivering that message that these two events are in fact a coordinated effort to put pressure on the United States to stop these patrols in the South China Sea. The last character you meet is actually, so let me back up. The end of the first chapter is the message he, when Lin Bao delivers that message, it's also delivered in coordination with a cyber attack. And that cyber attack, if I were to give you a visual, is basically the equivalent of the Chinese government blinking the entire Eastern seaboard. Right. The lights go off, they come right back on. Then the fifth character you actually meet at the beginning, very beginning of the second chapter. And when Major Wedge Mitchell's F-35 is taken down, waiting on the tarmac for him, is Brigadier Qasim Farshad, a veteran of the Iranian Quds Force. He is a veteran of the 20 years we've just spent in the forever wars, however, on the Iranian side. So he's fought in Afghanistan, Iraq, in Syria, uh, and even in Israel. And when we meet him, he is the one who has been tasked to conduct the interrogation uh, with Wedge Mitchell. And so with those five characters in mind, the novel unfolds. And this initial crisis, you'll see, starts to spread and escalate in unforeseen ways. So staying with the characters for a minute, uh, Elliot, um, this is an interesting selection. Unlike other quote unquote techno thrillers, this is a character driven uh, book in many respects, which I think is certainly a reflection of uh, in many respects of your background as a novelist. But why this selection of characters? Uh, you know, was there something about uh, the people that you chose and the roles that they had, uh, the backgrounds that they had that, you know, that, that, that speaks to a larger point that you want to make about uh, kind of things in general, the world in general? Dallas Baptist University is a global, Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, first of all, there's this larger question, right, of why a book that is so focused around characters, you know, individuals and their decision-making. Um, you know, the Marine Corps that I'm alumni of defines war in the following way, way. War is a contest between human wills. And I think that's a pretty good definition of warfare. Absolutely. So if that's the case, 
how can you tell a true war story unless you are singularly focused on the human beings involved in it and their psychology? So the technology is all well and good. And you'll see also it's very much present in the novel. I mean, cyber, yeah, is, very, yeah. cyber is very big mm -hmm. in this book. The role of technology, how technology can both can both advance you and give you an advantage in combat, but how it can also hinder you if you become too reliant upon it. Those are all central themes in the book. But so too is this idea of character. And I think each of these characters, as you meet them, they are multidimensional. Um, I think, you know, I relate to them in all sorts of ways, maybe unexpected. I mean, for instance, uh, a character like Kassim Farshad, the Iranian Quds Force general who I mentioned, um, his first name is Kassim, and he is the uh, godson of Kassim Soleimani. And when you learn about his backstory, his father was actually killed subverting an assassination attempt against Kassim Soleimani. And so he is a character who's experienced the last 20 years of war in America or that America has experienced, but just from the opposite perspective. So, you know, same thing with Lin Bao. Uh, and I have always felt in my novels that the, the job of a novelist is to create characters who are real, yes. who, are who are complicated, and then to give them the space on the page to stand there and make their case before their reader is that they were making their case before God. And no, you, the I reader, can decide. No, I, I, that's, I think, one of the unique uh, advantages or the unique sort of issues with this novel is that it is character driven and you do get a lot of background on these characters and their motivations and what drives them, which I found uh, especially interesting, but also the heart of any good novel like this is the scenario. So, you know, what it tell us a little bit about the world of 2034, uh, you know, just, you know, as I looked at it, you know, the United States is kind of in a different position than it is now, a little bit uh, perhaps less uh, dominant, at least uh, ultimately than, uh, than it perhaps thinks it is now. One thing that also struck me as the uh, novel unfolded was the lack of allies. The United States goes sailing into a lot of these things, doesn't seem like it's got a lot of support from other countries. Can, so talk a little bit about the scenario, the world of 2034. Absolutely, I mean, I listen, I think for, the first thing a reader would notice in this world um, is the, who the president of the United States is. And we never name the president specifically, but the, the president of the United States uh, is a woman, which is not surprising to me. I, I would be shocked if by 2034, a woman is not right. the president of the United States. But what might be more surprising is that the president is neither a Republican nor a Democrat, and that the endemic political dysfunction that we have been living with has finally led Americans to elect an independent president. Um, so you know, I think frequently as Americans, we, we seem to believe that you know, it's written in our founding documents that there must be two political parties and they must be Republicans and Democrats. But you know, as I'm sure all of you listening know, that, that's nowhere in our founding documents. And our first president, George Washington, was our, our only political independent. And he spent, when he, left, when he left office, he spent a significant chunk of his farewell address warning against what he called factions, which we call parties. And so you do see sort of the, the tail of some of our political dysfunction uh, in the world of 2034. Uh, and it also contributes to our inability to react uh, to this attack in a, in, a, in a way that is very concise and directed. And it's something that the Chinese characters uh, opine on a great deal in the book. Yes. <laughs> so when it comes to taking a critical eye in writing this book, you know, I, you, know you have to sit there and say, you know, how would, how would someone you know, who is Chinese? How, how do they look at us? And what are their critiques mm -hmm. of us? Doesn't necessarily mean it's right or wrong, 
But I think you know you have to do that type of a mental exercise. And I think if someone reads this book, they'll be rewarded in having gone through that type of an exercise. Um, but also with regards to our al our allies, you know, the world right now obviously is much more multi-dimensional. There are many more powers uh, than there were, let's say you know, at the end of the Cold War. Exactly. We basically had a bipolar world and that trend has only continued. Uh, and so we see new alliances also forming. We see, for instance, in the wake of the coronavirus and the collapse of Iran's economy that Iran and China have become much more closely allied. We see that Russia, uh, which is still led by, at this point, an octogenarian uh, President Putin, which I don't think is that tough to imagine. I think Not he's in all. pretty good shape <laughs> today. I think, I, think, I think he'll probably be around in 13 yeah. years. Um, very much is playing the spoiler, a role that, they, that they've played in the past. Um, and I think the other thing that we see very clearly is, you know, for many, many years, uh, I think there's been, an particularly since the end of the Cold War, the assumption that, you know, the United States uh, enjoys complete and total military dominance in the world. And that has slowly eroded and this incident for the first time shows that actually perhaps the, the areas where we thought we had military strength were a chimera because the next war does not look like the wars before and uh, cyber becomes a great leveler. Yes, and let's talk about that because cyber, I know Admiral Stavitis has been uh, a, a mm -hmm. big uh, advocate or a big sort of uh, uh, somebody who stresses the importance of cyber does not believe that I think the military uh, community has paid enough attention to the game-changing aspects of that. Talk a little bit about cyber and, and how it impacts the, without you know, obviously going too far into the plot, but that's obviously of the technologies that are talked about, it seems to be the one that has consistently the most dramatic impact. What was it you all were trying to you know, demonstrate by that? I think if the Admiral were here right now, you know, he'd be the first in to advocate that he believes it's high time that the United States founded a cyber force and, and placed that capability central in our national in our national defense in a way that it, it needs to be. I think um, specifically, you know, first of all, I, I don't think we need to highlight that cyber is key. I mean, right, two words for you, solar winds. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, we've seen we've we've seen this year alone. Uh, 400 of the Fortune 500 companies were hacked during solar winds. Uh, it was a hack so vast we're still trying to get our minds around it. Uh, and so, you know, this is really a new frontier in combat. But the, I think, you know, if we want to go out to 50,000 feet, uh, there is at the core of this novel this question of what is the next war going to look like. Exactly. So if you can imagine what the next war looks like, it allows you to look at your capabilities today and say, okay. How are these capabilities postured to necessarily meet that threat? And I think one of the things we see when, in cyber is that when we have all these state-of-the-art, extremely high-tech platforms that work very, very well under perfect conditions, how do they work under degraded conditions when our cyber capabilities have been compromised? And at the beginning of 2034, you see that the Chinese have been able to do this uh, without giving too much of the plot away. I'll just say that the first aircraft you see, as I mentioned, is a state-of-the-art F-35. But by the time the novel winds to its end, the last aircraft that you will see fighting in 2034 is a first-generation <laughs> F-18 Hornet. It's from circa around 1990 because it's not right. reliant on these on these advanced technologies. So the implications for this, you know, are interesting, you know, from a number of reasons. The uh, British government just announced its own substantial defense review, and as I was reading that, they said. They, they advocate or seem to be advocating some of the things I've heard uh, you and Admiral Stavitis say in other interviews about 
what U.S. forces need to look like. I mean, they're retiring legacy platforms, they're investing in cyber, they're organizing uh, elites, they're moving their special forces into kind of an elite, uh, you know, team that they can deploy around. I mean, it's, it's really a move toward a more, at one level, high technology, but smaller, more focused. I mean, as you, I mean, the U.S. in this book seems to have a very much of a legacy military in many respects, you know, one that's designed, yes, with a high technology aspect to it, but one that still looks not unlike what we have today. So basically, it sounds like you're saying that to, if, in fact, we do have to fight a war, we're going to need very different kinds of capabilities than we have today. Well, I think we're for, and, and today when you say the word conventional war, right? So I'm, right. I'm, a, I'm a veteran of two wars that would not be categorized as conventional wars. Right. Right. So when we say conventional war, I think frequently our mind goes back to the Second World War as the last really large-scale exactly right. conventional yeah. war. Yeah. Um, like for CJ, I like to tell people when I was in high school, I read the Iliad, like many high schoolers do. And I had this great copy of the Iliad and the front cover just said Iliad and it had a photograph of the landings on Omaha beach. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. and, and it always struck me that that is really our American Iliad. It's an earth story that we tell ourselves about war. And so when I say to you conventional war, what do we think about? We think some variation of the Second World War played out in a massive scale. And so, so many of our legacy platforms, our large carriers, uh, our state-of-the-art fighter planes are sort of mm -hmm. a projection forward of that type of a war. Exactly. And although I would imagine in a large commissional war, yes, there will be many aspects of that harken back to you know, that type of Second World War of fighting. And I know, for instance, my own service, the Marine Corps right now, is sort of reinventing what an island hopping campaign might look exactly. like. Exactly, yeah, yeah. There are significant portions where, you know, where those legacy platforms will not serve us well, um, particularly if the technologies on them are, are vulnerable to the type of cyber attacks we've seen on other, on other platforms uh, in the United States. Um, so the book tries to imagine what that would look like, and hopefully um, through that type of engagement, people can start to rethink the type of investment we're making in our, in our security. No, I think that's a, a, a critical message that uh, you know comes out in terms of the way you will depict the way the uh, uh, the way events transpire. But let's talk about I mean, what happens in this book. And you you mentioned a movie which I've always I've not read the book, but I've seen the movie The Bedford Incident, in which you know mm -hmm. a confrontation at sea escalates into something more. It's a confrontation between a, a U.S. destroyer and a Soviet submarine. The movie was made, I think, in the early to mid '60s. Yep. And, and what happens in the book, you know, again, without giving too much away, is is a series of escalations. And you know, how does that happen? You know, you go, you, there's a number of lessons, I think, there in terms of crises and how things can spin out of control or get beyond what uh, hopefully people are trying to do to control it. What do you, what's kind of the key point that you are trying to make with the, the way the scenario unfolds? Well, let me, I'll give you a, a slight anecdote from my own experience and, okay. and then I'll go directly to your question. Um, you know, I remember I worked as an intelligence officer for a number of years. And when I went through my training, I had a, a mentor. And um, I remember some of, the, some of the trainees would believe that like our rooms were bugged or our cars were bugged or they were doing this or that to us. And, we, and I would you know, offer some of these theories to my mentor. And he would always kind of shake his head and laugh at me. And he'd say, you know, if we were half as good as people <laughs> thought we were, we'd be really, really good. And I only That's bring that true. up because what he i think was getting at was this idea that i think many times there's this assumption that there are these this vast infrastructure in place that's going to make sure that you know 
silly little missteps or someone saying the wrong thing or having, you know, that, that will make sure the trains leave on time and that, and that no horrible altercation could ever occur, that no missile could be incorrectly launched, that no miscommunication could lead to some uh, vast devastating scenario. And it's always been my experience that that is not the case. That at the end of the day, the guardrails are just people. Right. They're just, they're just people. Uh, and that should, in some respects, terrify all of us. <laughs> and and uh, have all of us want to understand sort of the humanity of the individuals who are making these decisions. So that's why I think books like or films like the Bedford Incident, books like the Bedford Incident, are are great. That's why we wanted to, with these characters, you know, take you into the Oval Office and walk you through the sequencing of what it would look like if a president were to, for instance, deploy tactical nuclear weapons, uh, and show you again how you know big doors they swing on small hinges. Uh, so yeah, that's very much the spirit of this book is to take away some of the mystique. Right. The uh, sort of loss of control that can occur very quickly in any kind of environment where humans are under pressure and uh, are faced with unknowns about uh, what's out there and what's really not out there. And so they have to deal with uh, imperfect information. So uh, yeah, that comes across very clearly. Uh, and I think, uh, well, talk a little bit as well about uh, the, the role of the other powers, which I think is very interesting. You deliberately chose uh, other countries that you wanted to, you know, kind of work into the scenario. An important one is India, but there's also Russia. Uh, there's also Iran, as you mentioned. Uh, those are the ones that kind of enter into the plot uh, most specifically. But in this world in which the United States is not as uh, obviously dominant as it clearly thought it was or, or was at one point, how are these other powers? What are they after? What are they trying to do? Well, first of all, what one of the central themes of the book look kind of is a look back at the 20th century. What I mean by that is if we were to look at the last hundred years, I think we could certainly categorize those last hundred years as an American century. And I would offer that it was an American century birthed in two uh, conflagrations, right? The first and the second world war. And those were two wars that the United States did not begin, but they're two wars that we certainly finished and we finished them to, to great benefit, and it really allowed us to build out this American century. So you have a, you have this. Our book postulates a war at sea between the United started between the United States and China. But the question then becomes, you know, who ends that war? And without giving anything away, I'll tell you, it's not the United States and China. Um, so to sort of take you around to some of the powers here, you know, obviously we have an Iran that is, uh, you know, seeking the survival of its own regime and the continuance of that regime, and it's looking well past its own borders to new alliances and finds the Chinese as willing to cooperate with the Iranians. Uh, you have Russia, which you know, due to its demographics is uh, continues, uh, continues a trajectory of decline. Uh, however, is still very much eager to play the spoiler and feels that international chaos is really in its best interest because it's trying to capitalize wherever it can. And you have a nation like India um, who's you know, whose, whose demographics are very much, you know, young population, growing population, uh, you know, one that is facile with technology, one that is that speaks English, uh, which is, you know, lingua franca for so much of the world. So an emerging power. And then also, also China, that is an emerging power. And, you know, we could talk about ideas like the Thucydides trap, where, you know, if you're not familiar with that idea, but when you look back through the ages, whenever you have that dynamic of emerging power meets established power, 
you know, you frequently wind up with conflict. Again, to go back to, for instance, the, the first and second world wars, the emerging power was Germany and the established power were the British. Exactly. Um, so that those are the dynamics that are playing out on the international scene. Um, what's interesting is, in some respects, uh, are the powers you didn't mention. And I wonder if there was a, a, a method or a reason for that. There's no mention really of any of the Western European countries, Japan, Australia, South Korea, Israel, countries that you know, do figure a lot in the dialogue of today. I know you had to make choices, but was there any specific reason that uh, those countries were not uh, mentioned as part of the, uh, part of the scenario? You know, in fact, there is no great mystery there. Um, specifically, it was sort of artistic choices. The idea yeah. of, okay, you know, we have a story we need to tell. We know we want to make this book lean. We know we don't want readers to bog down something that's 800, 900 pages. So we have to make some stylistic choices of who, who are going to be the really central actors in this. And there is, for instance, in the book, a lot that happens off stage. And those decisions were made in the spirit of kind of keeping the narrative moving, keeping it as a page turner and keeping it so you had a contained cast of characters as opposed to a book like, you know, a, a Harmon Wooks, like the winds of war right. that's, you know, 900 pages yeah, and, then and, and an appendix of characters. So. In every theater, right. <laughs> and, right, right. So, um, so, but no, there's no real, obviously all of those countries would be playing roles and would have, you know, stories that were uniquely their own in, in such a conflict. Talk a little bit, if you would, about China. Um, Lin, the, the, Lin Biao, the, uh, the Chinese admiral, is a fascinating character for many respects, but you also go into a fair amount of detail to describe elements of the Chinese decision-making system, the way this, uh, their, their you know, political and military interact, uh, the way that they, in the way, and, and you know, kind of give a sense of the way they think about uh, uh, issues and crises. What, what kind of struck you as you were getting into this about China and the way they might deal with a situation like this, given that system, that culture, uh, that military uh, tradition. Right. Well, just like the United States, when this crisis begins, it escalates sort of out of control of both powers. So there is this continual, as you're going to war, operating in tandem with that is this process of crisis mitigation, that each side is trying to respond to not only respond to what the other side is doing, but to also ensure that the crisis doesn't spin out of so out of control that their domestic population is up in arms against them. Exactly. You see that very much with the Chinese and their decision-making. Um, so without giving too much away, um, there's a character named Zhao Leiji who comes up later in the book, who is a central figure in the internal security apparatus of the Chinese. And you see that as the war is playing out in tandem, he's also trying to clean up the mess that is occurring uh, to the yeah. war. Yeah. And so you and so what you see in parallel is how the Chinese mitigate the disaster that this war has become because wars are disastrous and how the Americans the other side tried to mitigate it and you see they're they're very different in their approach. Yeah, that that to me was really fascinating. And uh, in terms of the way you portrayed that system and the way it would uh, potentially deal with this crisis, does what's China's view of the United States in 2034? Do they do they take action based on their view that uh, they're a declining power? Do they see how do they see uh, the United States? Uh, uh, you know, as the as the novel opens, or there's you know talk a little bit about that you know during the course of the novel. But how do, how does China view the U.S.? That was a question, in fact, that came in through the chat. Sure. I listen. I think there is, as Americans, right? We can frequently get trapped into into assuming that all the all of the liberties, all of the freedoms, all of the great attributes that are America are qualities that the rest of the world admires as well, and the Chinese certainly don't. 
and they don't believe our system is a superior system. They don't believe that in China they're dealing with an inferior system that they will someday aspire to a capitalist democracy. They don't want that. They're not interested in that. So assuming that's true, you have to then try to inhabit the mind of how a, China, you know, how, how a Chinese official would view the United States. I think they view the United States, or at least the characters in the book, as uh, as working within a system of governments that is that is not efficient, okay. that at times is decadent, mm-hmm. and that at times is duplicitous to itself, self-duplicitous, that tells itself one story when in fact it operates according to very different norms, both domestically and internationally. And so throughout the book, when the when the Chinese characters, as I mentioned, step onto the page to make their case before you, the reader, as though you are God, these are the things that they are saying. And then they are countered in other chapters of the American characters who are, you know, obviously very much in this fight, you know, to include sort of the most straightforward American character, Major Chris Wedge Mitchell, the fourth generation Wayne, yeah. Wayne fighter pilot. <laughs> yeah, no, I wasn't a Marine, but uh, I could see that definitely was written by a Marine. So yes. there's no two ways about that. And an aviator to boot in his mm-hmm. case. So let's talk about from the U.S. side for a minute. Uh, you've got two characters that kind of, uh, uh, you know, work against each other to some degree in the course of the, as the crisis unfolds. What were you hoping to convey about the nature of the U.S. system in contrast to the Chinese during the course of this crisis as it unfolds? Well, I think what you see, one of the, one of the U.S. characters I think maybe you're alluding to is the uh, uh, National Security Advisor, exactly. Wise, Wise Carver. Yes. And um, why is, you know, I will say, you know, there aren't really, this isn't a book where we've made a lot of good guys, bad guys. We're not focusing on villains. I mean, the true villain of this book is war itself. Right. However, I will say if there is one character in this book who's as close to as bad guys you can get, it is the National Security Advisor. Yes, I picked that up. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, he is a person who he's very hawkish. He's got an axe to grind against China. And he believes the U.S. should be fighting this war, and it is a righteous war. And as we are hurtling down this highway of escalation, every time sort of an exit ramp appears, where perhaps if we maneuver in a certain way, we can we can get both the United States and China to de-escalate. Wise Carver tries his damnedest to make sure they do not take that exit ramp. He he wants this war, and he believes it's righteous. Um, and what we try to show you in the novel is, you know, down to how people are moving through the White House and how papers are getting delivered on various principals' desks, how those internal politics play out. Um, and I think in the Chinese system, uh, what you see is these are individuals more stuck in a very rigid and yes. formal system yes. where everything is about protecting the power structure itself and ensuring there's enough distance between the decision makers so that they can plausibly deny any decision that leads to a failure. And the US system you see is, is, is messier. It's people running papers down hallways to principals and it's more kind of your shirt sleeves up as opposed to you know, a bureaucratic ordering of decisions through a larger system. Please tell me Mr. Weiscarver was not based on any true life person that uh, you know out there, but. Uh, I, will, I will say only one, one thing. I am um, a graduate of Tufts University. The Admiral's a graduate of the US Naval Academy and Weiscarver is a graduate of West Point. <laughs> <laughs> Enough said, I'll, uh, yeah. I'll leave, it at, uh, leave it at that. 
Well, finally, I just want to kind of uh, talk a little bit about uh, the other sort of major power that really kind of you know, India, which uh, you portray very interestingly in uh, in this book. Uh, they assume a role that, again, I won't go into detail about, but uh, obviously you think India is a, is a coming power, one that is, you mentioned the demographics that they have. What is it about India that uh, kind of gave, led you all to kind of give them a, uh, an important role in the, in the, in the plot that uh, you have? Um, I think that they're, you know, listen, China is very much focused on its one belt, one road strategy uh, of becoming a, you know, economically global force, overland trade routes, sea trade routes. I mean, there's just one problem. There's a huge speed, speed belt in the one belt, one road, and it's, it's that speed bump is India. Exactly. So right in the middle of it. Uh, you know, China has many demographic problems um, that India, for instance, does not have very young population there. As I mentioned, a very tech savvy population. Uh, English is the lingua franca, uh, great deal of education among the upper classes in India and in that in this book, it's interesting to see how India positions themselves in this crisis. And I just, you cannot count India out uh, as we enter a, you know, perhaps what some have called the foothills of a cold war between the United States and China. If you're not thinking about India, you're not thinking about the whole picture. The, the, the conflict rather quickly, uh, or I won't say you know, too much, but nuclear weapons are employed. I won't describe how they're employed or, uh, uh, or, or who, gets, uh, who gets hit, but, uh, and how, but, but do you see that if there is a war that the likelihood uh, of nuclear exchange is going to be high? I mean, how do you, you know, it, it doesn't take long to show up. So, so give me a sense as to what you think that if in fact something like this does happen that the nuclear exchange might occur. Well, first of all, I'll say, I mean, th this book is not written in the spirit of saying we are predicting that a war is going to happen in 2034. It's written in the spirit of saying, listen, based on where the world is at right now, based on how countries are positioned, it's worth imagining what this war would look like. So we can all head check ourselves and, and conclude this would be absolutely horrible and we should never do it. And I would, I would postulate that one of the reasons we never saw uh, a war between the United States and the Soviet Union was because that war had been so well imagined and both yes. parties had reached mutual conclusions that this is absolutely unacceptable. We cannot fight this war. And that maybe right now it's worth going through the same type of imaginative exercises. Like I hope, I hope that people in China will read this book just so that they can go through the imaginative exercise and, and come to the mutual conclusion that in this war, no one would win. But specific to your question about nuclear weapons, I think in that regard, there is probably this a sense over many years that there's a belief that these weapons would never be used. That this, you know, you, no one would deploy a tactical nuclear weapon, and I think that is an assumption that's worth challenging, uh, given you know, given certain situations, and then saying, and what would happen if someone did break the seal and use a tactical nuclear weapon? Could that you, could that lead to a strategic nuclear weapon? Um, because to not do so is almost negligent in a certain way. Um, have the Chinese, do they write novels like this? Do you know of anything that uh, the Chinese have put question. out that uh, you know, talks about a future war? And if so, how do they differ, if you know, uh, from, from, what, uh, from yours or other novels like this that are being written, at least in English? Um, I do not know of any Chinese novels of a similar vein that have been written in English, um, but I think it, I would welcome and think it would be fantastic if you started to see this type of a literature emerge in China as well. And I think, you know, culturally, the United States and China have been in an interesting place recently because as tensions between the two powers have escalated, uh, for instance, in, in film in the United States, 
you know, it's very difficult to make a film that's critical of China because right. some companies need the Chinese box office. But in some respects, this is a conversation I think worth, worth having because again, it will lead to both powers recognizing that whatever our differences is, our war is in nobody's best interest and it should be avoided at all costs. Absolutely. Yeah, one question in the chat we have is about Hong Kong and Taiwan in 2034. How do they play into your, your thinking? Uh, obviously, they're top of mind right now, but uh, do they, mm -hmm. are they still a factor uh, in the scenario that you all lay out? Absolutely. I mean, I think Hong Kong, Hong Kong less so, um, because in many respects, we, we've reached a bit of an end game with Hong Kong. Uh, but Taiwan, as this, as this situation unfolds and escalates quickly, Taiwan plays a, a central role and the Chinese make moves on Taiwan. I don't want to spoil too much in the book, but you can see in the novel how the U.S. responds uh, and how other global powers respond to that. Um, another question that's in our chat has to do, and I read this as well, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal last week about the new role of the U.S. Coast Guard in patrolling the South China Seas. That seems to me to be, you know, kind of piling on to some of the other things that has been going on there. It ended by saying the Coast Guard deployments are meant to allow the U.S. to confront those Chinese pros with less risk of a military incident than if the U.S. Navy were involved. Similarly, the Chinese have used their Coast Guard and fishing fleet kind of as the front end of many of the things that they're doing in the China Sea. Is this in any way de-escalatory or is it just, you know, part of the same overall, uh, you know, kind of way of acting that we've seen just with different, uh, different platforms? I think, I think it makes sense to engage those forces as opposed to the, you know, active U.S. Navy where you can. Um, but the fact of the matter is um, that so long as the Chinese maintain that the South China Sea are territorial waters, there's going to be a dispute there. And you have a high probability of some type of an incident occurring there. And then again, you have another probability of that escalating quickly. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very dangerous work to be doing these freedom of navigation patrols, um, particularly as the Chinese military begins its expansion. And, you know, and we're getting very soon uh, to a time, if we're not already there, where we, where we truly have a peer level competitor in the Chinese Navy. And even if you would say today that they're not a peer level competitor, the fact of the matter is if we were to ever fight in the South China Sea, you know, they would have home court advantage yes. and we would be fighting exactly. a world away from our forces. Exactly. Um, before we talk about kind of the, the key lessons that you want people to take away, we've hinted on some of these already, but I'd like to make sure that uh, we get an opportunity for you to say, here are the things I really want people to take away. Uh, I'm curious about how you, uh, you obviously want to inform people about this. Do you, and the inference appears to be that there's not as much discussion about, uh, or the need for additional talk about what a war might look like. Do you feel like, you know, there's a lot of people in the national security community focused on China more broadly. We have a lot of commentary about it in the press. What are we missing in terms of, uh, in terms of this, this issue and what's not being discussed? Uh, uh, you know, are, we, are there elements of it that are not being addressed that you hope that uh, you know, perhaps this will help address? I'm curious as to kind of your thoughts about uh, the, uh, the, the deficiencies in the current dialogue and, and thinking about China more generally. Well, I think one of them we already hit on, which is cyber. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very important to have front of mind how cyber is really a game changer in this regard. And I think there it's important for the United States to understand how our technology both gives us great advantage, but can also become a liability. Right. Um, let me be a little bit specific with that. I'll share an anecdote with you. So I, uh, I work as a journalist as well, and I covered the Syrian civil war for a number of years. And when I was covering that war, I was based in Turkey. And uh, 
a Syrian friend called me one day and said he had met a guy who was a former member of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and he wanted to have a meeting with me down on the Syrian border. And the idea of the piece was two veterans of the Iraq war sit down and we kind of have a cup of tea and talk about our wars, but we fought on opposite sides. And so I took the meeting, we sat down, we you know, had our drink, we talked about the war, turned out you know, we fought in a number of the same places. And then at a certain point, he quoted Albert Einstein to me. And he leaned across the table and he said, you know, Einstein predicted everything that's happening right now. And this was during the rise of the Islamic State. He said, Einstein said that the Third World War would be a nuclear war, but that the Fourth World War would be fought with sticks and stones. He said, and that's how we beat, he said, that's how we beat you in Iraq is with sticks and stones. Interesting. And so, and this was a theme I, I saw throughout my military service. You know, in Afghanistan, the Taliban had a saying, which was, you all might have the watches, but we have the time. We have and the time, right. To, to stick out insurgency. And so I think one of the things that is a key theme in this book, as you'll see, is the way that technology is all well and good, but if that technology is rendered null and void, if the radio stop working, if the GPS stops honing, you know, stops giving you your 10-digit grid coordinate, what do you do? Are you going to be adaptive enough to still fight? Uh, and I think if we were in any type of war with China or any type of pure competitor, you know, it would immediately become a war where we're not only are we attacking one another, we're attacking each other's technology. Yes. How do you respond to that? Right. And homeland. I mean, I think we've been, the right. wars we fought since uh, 19, certainly 1945, 19, have not been involved where the U.S. homeland has been struck directly. That's Absolutely. not going to be the case going forward. Right. And I think a lot of people don't uh, don't realize that. Well, this is a, a fascinating scenario. Let's talk about, you know, kind of you know, two things. One, how do we prevent the world of 2034, the scenario that you're uh, talking about from actually coming about in the way that you all describe it? What are the, let's, let's talk about some of the key lessons that you want people to take away from this. I think, first of all, I think, listen, with regards to our posturing with China, you know, we should find areas of cooperation where we can and confront where we must. And I think that is, at this moment, seems to be also the Biden administration's policy. And I would, I would applaud that. I think there are areas as well where the United States you know, needs to, and has really woken up to uh, how the Chinese have, have you know, manipulated markets in terms of trade, uh, issues like the South China Sea and others. But I think there's also areas where you know, we should focus in on cooperation, uh, for instance, areas such as you know, climate change. Um, but I think the greatest thing that we can do is to continue our to continue to, to continue to develop our military readiness. I think you have seen the Department of Defense posture away from our Middle Eastern wars and do the hard thinking and reorientation towards uh, towards this towards the Pacific. Um, and in addition to that, I think you know just as a novelist that we need to you know that we need to continue telling ourselves these stories and to continue to be engaged on these issues because this is how you avoid the wars. And if you've really thought things out, that's how you can you can keep off these shoals. And I think it's through, uh, at least if you look through history, it's through complacency that often these things uh, turn awry. I think that's a really good point. And uh, you know, you talk about, uh, I know in one of the interviews you had, you all talked about the lack of imagination that uh, tends to inflict certain official ways of thinking in, in Washington. We all get wrapped around ways of doing things. Habit, uh, you know, it continues to make sense to make giant aircraft carriers or, you know, do things a certain way because that's the way we've done them for a long time. So uh, how do we inject more of that into, for example, our how we educate our, our public servants and, and, off, and military officers and 
and, and folks like that? Is it getting them to read more novels? Is it getting them to, uh, uh, you know, more more in insight on China? You know, how do we begin to to make that? Because uh, we did it pretty well between the wars, I would argue, uh, in many respects. Yeah, we have done a lot. I mean, listen, look, if if you if if you look at the last hundred years or so, I would say the three great catastrophes the United States has faced, right? Pearl Harbor, September 11th, and most recently this pandemic, all of which were failures of imagination. How many times in the last however many months have you said like, I never could have imagined what, we'd be walking around with face masks or we'd all be Zooming like this. You know, right. I mean, the, the, you know it's, it's all around us. So I think for our military and our government is creating a culture um, that allows people to, you know, to, to push conceptually, to, to, to continue to bring forward those voices that are the ones that are doing the hard work that is forcing the organization to, to meet the uncomfortable areas where it's vulnerable and where it maybe hasn't done the imaginable work to be ready for the next threat. Um, and so, yes, we've seen that in the past. You know, we've seen people like Richard Clark before 9-11, who up until mm -hmm. the week before the 9-11 attacks was saying, you know, we are incredibly vulnerable to an attack on the homeland from Al-Qaeda. You know, he was not listened to. You know, all the way back to Billy Mitchell between the wars, who was warning about an attack on the U.S. battleship fleet from the air uh, before the Second World War. He was not listened to. So I think having a culture that really looks for these creative voices and elevates them is going to is going to be important as we move deeper into this 21st century. Well, I agree. And I think that, uh, you know, the other thing that strikes me is that uh, uh, I think it's going to require not just injecting additional imagination, but given the way you don't really directly deal with it in the novel, but suggest that we need to do some additional thinking about the way we govern the country and, you know, things that, uh, 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 you know, there's certain things we need to fix in our system. You know, the Chinese have their system. We can't really affect that. But it seems like as well that uh, we've set ourselves up potentially for failure in the way that things have evolved in your scenario uh, from the current political situation. Is that a fair assumption? I, yes, and I couldn't agree more. And I think, listen, the, um, I remember how this country reacted after September 11th and it was, you know, it didn't extend past maybe a year or two, but there was a moment of great national unity as we figured out how to, how to come together and address the problems of international terrorism. If we look at this past year with the pandemic, which was an existential crisis in this country, it has not been a year of unity. It's been an incredibly divisive year and the country has not figured out how to come together. I don't say that casting, trying to disperse blame. I say that, you know, this is probably a moment for some soul searching because this will not be the last existential threat America faces. And if we cannot figure out how to, despite our differences, face existential threats as one American family, you know, our days are numbered. Yes, I think that's absolutely right, and I think that uh, that becomes very clear uh, as you uh, as you put this uh, as you read this novel and uh, kind of ingest the scenario that uh, that it lays out. So, um, plans for a sequel? Uh, anything that you're thinking about in terms of building on this? Uh, uh, an option for a movie yet? I'm just curious. I mean, there's there uh, anything any other plans to build on this as part of the perhaps the education uh, that we discussed about the need to get more of this out there. I'm sure before I said, I would just add one point. I am in no way though, and I think nor is the Admiral um, down on America. I think when you look, there are huge, huge advantages we have. Uh, our demographics, uh, our, our, you know, our systems of education, all of which position us very, very well into the 21st century. You know, the question is just, you know, are we going to take advantage of, uh, of, 
of all of those aspects to continue to, to hold the position that we've enjoyed through, you know, what people have called this last American century. And I hope the novel is a wake up call uh, for that. With regards um, uh, to sequels, uh, you very well might. So we'll, we'll see, stay, <laughs> stay, stay, stay tuned. There are people who would like us to do, do one or two more in this genre. And, um, you know, I myself would, you know, love to see it on a screen, but you know, that, that's a whole nother world. And indeed it is. Indeed it is. So uh, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll kind of stop there, but Elliot, uh, I really want to thank you for, uh, for being here. I want to just let people know that uh, this is a phenomenal work. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I went through it uh, very quickly. I'll probably read it again in case I missed some nuances. It's not your typical techno thriller by design. It's something very different. So please, uh, I'd like to remind everybody to pick up a copy of, tw of this book, 2013, I'm sorry, 2034, a novel of the next world war. You can get it at Interabang Books as on the screen and get a 10% discount off your online purchase uh, by using the code DFWORLD. Uh, also, to catch up on our continuing, and we have a lot of really good programs coming up uh, in the DFW uh, World Affairs Council, please go to uh, our YouTube channel at DFW World uh, or go to the site and, uh, uh, and, and look and see what's coming up. There's a lot of good activity, uh, many good programs coming up. If you're not a member of the council, uh, please join. Uh, we'd love to have you. Go to dfwworld.org to learn about how you can uh, join the council. And uh, for more information on membership, op membership options, I've been a member uh, for, gosh, almost since I came back to Dallas 20 years ago, along with my wife. And speaking of my wife, I'll just say that uh, she, has, she reads a lot of thrillers, and she said, this is an outstanding piece of work. Uh, she's, uh, she's really a connoisseur in many respects. So if you've got her oh. approval, uh, I can guarantee you that uh, you'll continue to. And where are you on the New York Times bestseller list right now? Number four, I think, last time I checked? Uh, we were six. Number six. Six? Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, uh, as I say, it's a phenomenal book. I can't recommend it more highly. I enjoyed it. I think you will, too, uh, if you get a chance to read it. So please pick it up via Tarabang. Elliot. Again, thank you for being here. It was a great conversation. I hope we can sometime meet in person beyond uh, the virtual area. Again, my best to the Admiral. Sorry he couldn't be here, but uh, thank you again, sir, for being here. It was a real pleasure to talk to you and best of luck with the book. Thank you, Jay. Thanks so much to you all your hosting me.